Hey guys, welcome to The Culture Journalist. Today we're taking you back, way back, to 1999. Emily, what were you listening to that year? So I was in my early teens in 1999. I think the albums that I was most into were probably Nirvana's Nevermind and Hole's Live Through This. So I guess that puts me like about a half decade behind the times but it was like a super cool discovery no matter when you discovered it and I have this very distinct memory of like being in my middle school locker room and finding this whole shirt like I think it was a live through this shirt or something and I thought that it had been discarded and I think I noticed it a couple of times and no one had picked it up. And then I started wearing it being like, oh man, this is the shirt that's going to make me seem really, really cool. And then this really cool girl who was a couple years older stopped me and was like, hey, that's my shirt. And she had like purple hair and was this really sophisticated upperclassman. And I was super embarrassed that's my story. Did you give it back to her? Yes, I did give it back to her and I was mortified. <laughs> that That's a quintessential mortifying middle school experience, I'd say. And what about you, Andrea? What were you listening to? I was still sort of on the cusp of breaking out of like sort of the teeny bopper pop of my childhood And starting to make my first forays into rock and alternative music. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there was definitely still some Backstreet Boys in the mix. I'm not too proud to say that. And also on the other side of the spectrum, definitely dabbling in some Limp Bizkit. But I remember two of my favorite albums at the time were TLC's Fan Mail, Still Slaps, and Beck's Midnight Vultures, which is still one of my top five favorite albums. Oh, totally. Yeah, Midnight Vultures. Midnight Vultures is perfect because it's just such a strange album and the lyrics are all kind of nonsensical and it's kind of a great access point. Like if you're still not of the emotional maturity to really take in certain aspects of, you know, deep music yet. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. He was definitely a gateway artist. So we're talking about 1999 today for a couple of reasons. It is 2021, which means that the parade of two decade anniversaries for things that helped form our understanding of art and culture in the world has begun. Think Y2K, September 11th, The Strokes Is This It. There's even a festival happening called Just Like Heaven, which basically packs the entire history of 2000s indie music into a single day. Part of that strange nostalgia train includes a doc that we haven't been able to stop thinking about. Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. It's a polarizing new documentary on HBO about a festival 22 years ago that went horribly, horribly off the rails. And it's the first installment in a six-part series called Music Box, which the ringer's Bill Simmons touts as a sister to his sports series 30 for 30. Anyone who had their eyes on MTV at the time probably remembers what happened, but the short version is this. The organizers of the original Woodstock, you know, the Woodstock that your boomer parents maybe went to in 1969, on a pastoral farm where Jimi Hendrix played the Star-Spangled Banner, where beautiful long-haired hippies rolled around in the mud and countercultural idealism, they decided to book a follow-up festival 30 years later. Woodstock 99 carried the same name, but otherwise bore little resemblance to the music and crowd of its origins. The lineup was stacked with the sorts of rap rock, new metal, and angsty singer-songwriters that were blasting on alternative radio and at hot topics across America. Think Limp Bizkit, Korn, Alanis Morissette, and there was also a handful of jam bands there. The event itself was held on a former military airbase and Superfund site, selling water for $4 a bottle during a massive heat wave and failing to install enough porta potties to accommodate a 400,000 person crowd. What could possibly go wrong? 
The weekend descended into a cavalcade of horrors, including rioting, vandalism, widespread dehydration, and sexual assault, capped off by a giant infernal blaze on the final night after a candlelight vigil turned into an angry uprising against the festival's organizers. The documentary expertly takes us through the play-by-play of those events, juxtaposing archival footage with retrospective interviews with artists like Moby and Jewel, festival goers and staff. Along the way, it makes a pretty convincing case for Woodstock 99 being one of the most egregious examples in pop music history of toxic white masculinity gone too far. Still, we're not quite sure why this doc was made or who it's for. There was something that grated us about it something that we couldn't quite put our finger on at first. It seemed to put the onus of the festival's disastrous outcome on the hard and abrasive music that these bands were playing, without giving as much of a sense of why young people were gravitating to this music in the first place, or of the larger cultural context that gave rise to it. But then Craig Jenkins, music critic at Vulture, and an old colleague of ours from Noisy, published a piece that pretty perfectly summed up our grievances especially when it comes to the film's depiction of a period of music and cultural history that we lived through as teens. It's called We're Still Getting Woodstock 99 Wrong, and it thoughtfully nails the challenges and blind spots of how we retell and preserve cultural narratives in the era of streaming and clickbait. He writes, Peace, love, and rage is pointed in attributing blame for the carnival of horrors the weekend would entail, but light on why the dehydrated revelers wanted to go in the first place. Woodstock 99 attempts to trace the tributaries drizzling fuel on the festival's inferno, but it's more notable for being the rare music documentary that doesn't really seem to care for much of the music it's covering. Craig joins us today to discuss his piece, What the Doc Gets Wrong, and what it tells us about our current culture media landscape. We'll be right back after the break. Hey guys, we are here with Craig Jenkins. He's the music and culture critic for New York Magazine, and we should mention a Pulitzer finalist. Craig, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So watching this documentary, I think Emily and I both couldn't help but ask ourselves, why is this really rubbing me the wrong way? And from reading your piece, you know, I got the sense that you had a similar reaction. So, so looking back, what was the thing that graded you the most? I kept watching it and I had to like keep running it back because I couldn't figure out what was annoying me. And (laughs) that's how that piece sort of turned into what it turned into. I think I was trying to articulate what was frustrating about the documentary, which is, you know, specifically that it felt like it was trying to explain how the end came about. It didn't seem there was enough time to explain all the cultural movements that explain why it started in the first place. But I want to know, like, why why are there hundreds of thousands of people in this field this horrible field with all these bands that were being told are horrible like why did that happen i don't feel that if someone didn't know the circumstances behind it coming into that they would come out necessarily understanding what the appeal was right it presented this story without really any kind of justification or motive other than to be cultural disaster porn that wanted to capitalize seemingly on the success of the Firefest documentaries that came out two years ago. But, you know, to be fair, it was a ridiculous moment. And a lot of that stuff is hard to explain. Even now, like trying to explain what the appeal was with Limp Biscuit is sort of like you had to be there. But I just felt like it was lacking a certain grace. Yeah. First of all, I was like a bit young to really fully understand what had happened and what it meant. But nonetheless, that moment was part of the backdrop when I grew up. And I was hoping to watch this documentary and get more clues as to, you know, what was the context that informed my experience. And I just didn't get that at all, especially since I didn't know that much about it to begin with. Right. Instead of taking the traditional 
direction and, and, and nuance of a documentary, which I feel like the assumption is that it would be heavily contextually based to justify its existence. This almost felt like it was made according to preempting what the possible critiques of it could be on Twitter, if that makes sense. You know, I, I don't necessarily blame any of the cultural critics who were there. It seemed like there was like maybe 20 minutes allotted to explaining the how. I just felt like the, the balance needed to be recalibrated. It either needed to be an hour longer or they just needed a two minute montage of like stuff that happened, starting with, I don't know, Rage Against the Machine, you know, get into the weird history of rap rock, you know, tell it from that aspect and then get to the business. Maybe I would have even been happier if it was just had that in it. So what are your memories of the moment that was Woodstock 99 when it actually happened? What, what did you make of the whole thing at the time? I was taping a lot of it on the radio, listening at home, really sad. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to go and I was not allowed to. And this was fantastic advice telling me not to go. So I stayed home and I listened to it and I thought I heard a lot of decent sets in there. It did sound super chaotic and watching the news as that stuff burned down, I was like, well, how about that? Years later, I meet a friend or two who were actually out there and how they explained it to me and which has colored my understanding of the thing as much as any reporting has ever done is that everyone just got super fed up with the way that they felt as though this music and culture thing that was supposed to be, you know, bring people together was just a cash grab and just eventually they took over the concession stands and commandeered everything. And it was kind of just like a populist riot kind of a situation. I've understood it that way. And, you know, even with all the gross stuff that's happened, it seemed like the burning down aspect was absolutely an, an attempt to like, just like get water. Like people were thirsty. That, that was my understanding. I love that you were recording it on the radio. It's kind of like the original YouTube live stream. Where, where was it being broadcast for you? I think it would be 92.3 K-Rock in New York City. They were just sort of running the nightly uh, sets. So I definitely have a tape of the, I think it was Limp Biscuit Rage Against the Machine Night or whatever. Like, no, it was like Limp Biscuit and Metallica or something played back. I had all that stuff tapes labeled for many years until I sort of got rid of most of that stuff. But yeah, like it was just a weird conglomeration of a lot of different stuff that I was into. And as the documentary does fairly point out, super haphazard. There were jam bands there. Cheryl Crow and Jewel were there. And then like Limp Bizkit and Rage Against the Machine. Guster was there, of course. <laughs> Dave Matthews was there. It just like, and it seemed just like there wasn't a sensible like hand creating and curating that thing on top of all the other horrors. Well, it just felt like it was booked according to what was doing well on TRL and the charts and not with really any kind of intention other than to be... The, the bestseller headliners. Yeah. And, and I think that also trickles down into the location, which is a ridiculous location to think to stage something in the summer with music, you know, a, a hot, you know, tar covered air force base walled in kind of a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And also as someone points out in the documentary, sort of like spiritually at loggerheads with what the concept of Woodstock was. And it's weird to think that like some of the same guys who were involved put that one on because it's almost like an about face in the spirit of what I understand the original to be. But, you know, maybe that's the difference between the 60s and the 90s. Things get darker. So the film, as I sort of touched on before, felt like an opportunity to help people make sense of a chapter in music and youth culture history. And yet it leaves viewers with almost no sense of the wider zeitgeist of the time the political and economic and cultural factors that might have made some of this music resonate with so many people in the first place. Like, how do you remember the feeling in the air at the time? Were there specific aspects of the late 90s youth experience you felt that the film failed to hit on? Yeah. If you're a teen in the late 90s, chances are your parents are from the boomer generation and you've grown up on the internet and they haven't. And just your understanding of culture and the way the world works is completely different. And in a way that's not been legitimized yet in the way that, you know, social media and gaming culture and all that stuff have since been able to create pathways to careers for people that are respected. That was not there. So you were a layabout and you were wasting your time on the internet and you were wasting your money on the music. And so what that stuff is, is it's just that music came about from people who felt 
completely alienated by the prior generation. You know, latchkey kids and Midwest kids, mall rats, they didn't feel understood by their families. They didn't feel understood by their parents. They're gravitating toward this darkness. Mental health isn't understood the way it is now, ADD, all that stuff. This is when they start medicating kids and they're not very careful about it. There's so much, for me, context that that made that music sell. And I wish the documentary at least talked about the first Korn album because that's a record about reconciling childhood trauma and family issues and masculinity, just all this really naughty stuff. I think maybe even smart stuff. But if you come at it from a surface level, it just sounds really loud and it sounds really rude and it's mixing stuff together that nobody really thought should be mixed before. But I mean, that was just tastes melting in together in a weird way. And that was just a generational shift that we understand now better 20 some odd years later. And, you know, everyone's a bit younger than Gen X and people are trying to figure out millennials. There's not even a title for the generation at that point. It was a weird time to be young. It was absurd. Suddenly we're all online and the world is shifting at a rapid pace and no one understands it. No one understands us. And here come these loud, angry dudes who are making music about being misunderstood. It's a no-brainer. We gravitated toward Fred Durst because he was being defiant and angry and he felt like the world owed him something. And that was not uncommon and still isn't uncommon, especially among young men. Mm. Um, A lot of angry male animus, but a lot of also legitimate generational growing pains. Do you think there was like a premonition in the air at the time that people of that generation would never be able to like live up to the expectations and success of the boomer generation? Like this is obviously way before the crash of 2008, but do you think that was already in the air? I don't know that it was. You know, we thought that there was a wide open world of possibilities. Um, We were at least in the mid to late 90s in a sort of period of relative to what had come before and what would come afterward, sort of stability. What happens in the 2000s, all the divisions, that stuff's being teed up in the 90s, and especially in the late 90s. The documentary talks about feminism in early 90s rock, and that is a reaction to people trying to reverse Roe v. Wade. Literally, people were being exploded outside abortion clinics, and the sort of subtext to any angry or very, very serious 90s rock music is that a lot of stuff sucked, even if it was a good time. And even if change was happening, it wasn't happening quickly enough. And so, yes, the music got very angry. And yes, it grew a social consciousness. Not everyone had all their politics neatly wrapped up. And so you're going to have dumb guys getting loud and wanting to break stuff. And it just feels like the biggest point that they overlooked in terms of the context of this music was the fact that folks like Jonathan Davis from Korn and what they were writing about was very much a response to the failed promise of the peace and love generation and how it became so not that. And that's the underlying, I think, story of that whole documentary. It started out a way and then that generation turned into the generation, you know, that's running the country the way it is right now. Another point that I think that the documentary handled well, there's absolutely a response to the, to the promise of, of a good future and a better future and the, the ways in which we weren't there yet. I, I wrote a thing at, uh, at Noisy back in the day. The article is like bands who are super overrated and I felt like Rage Against the Machine was overrated because they were angry in a period of prosperity, but have since realized that actually like they were informing people and they were getting people aware of weird issues that we wouldn't have necessarily been aware of. Like, you know, stuff behind the prosperity that, you know, the problems with police that still persisted, all that stuff. Like there, there is absolutely a social consciousness to new metal. You have system of a down, a band that still to this day is trying to raise money for issues overseas for the war in Armenia. It seemed like it felt significant to you that that band specifically, Rage Against the Machine, was left out, even though they did play. Yeah. Well, that was the first band that I ever saw live. My first concert is, my first concert could have been Woodstock 99. Yikes. The first show I ever went to was Rage Against the Machine, and it was sort of a ridiculous scene because on the one hand, you have this very serious political band and, and the people who are really sort of learning about, you know, social 
justice and stuff behind it. And then you have the people who are there to just get drunk and party. And so I saw a microcosm of that at the show. But so you have this band, which is literally the beating heart of the, the political consciousness of that era performing at that festival. And I just feel like, why wouldn't that come up? They, they play over someone talking about something else. You don't hear the audio. Maybe that was a licensing thing. But I just thought, why not talk about that band? It just felt like that was a key into history. And that was a key into the not necessarily so awful parts of that festival. But it gets played up as, here are these really loud bands playing in a row. And that's the most that we hear about. And it was frustrating for me. It's ironic because the subhead for the doc, you know, it's called Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. You're not going to talk about this massive band called Rage Against the Machine. That was one of the headliners. Did it seem like the film's depiction of these rap rock bands as catering mostly to the specific kind of people who are at that exact festival? Did that feel accurate to you? This idea of these really toxic white bros who are kind of frat boys, that that's like the main audience for this music? To an extent, it's both accurate and maybe an oversimplification. Like not everybody in the room was that. Plenty of people of color love that stuff. Deftones especially has a big Latin fan base. Rage Against the Machine, beloved among hip hop heads. But, you know, say you have five minutes to explain to someone what this is, like maybe you're not getting into the depth of it. It's not inaccurate to say that a lot of angry white dudes were the core. It wasn't ever always just them, though. This is anecdotal, but I, I grew up in New York City and in the city high school that I went to, most of the people who were into that stuff were really the kind of loners and like the alt kids. And exactly. it, it wasn't entirely a white demo either not bros no like definitely not bros it was definitely the type of kid that parents would drop off at the mall and then pick up way later on in the day <laughs> and just like get other stuff done because they didn't feel like dealing with the kid that is your core new metal kid <laughs> i remember a lot of kids with baggy pants and like wallet chains um, almost had one <laughs> Happy to say that I did not have one in the 90s, although I did maybe have one in the 2000s. I forget. <laughs> I, I had a wallet chain. <laughs> I went to school around the store from a skate shop. So like Jinkos were present, but I never really got that deep into it. Another maybe reason my mom, she made some of the right decisions, even if I was angry about them at the time. She was like, you're not really getting that deep into that. And I hated it. But now I can say I never wore the corniest 90s gear and I never went to the corniest 90s festival. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up jinkos because that was definitely such a popular fashion choice i think i had like ladies jinkos at one point <laughs> that was like i also associated that with ravers or there was like ufos in parachute pants and then jinkos and it was all just this swirl of different subculture or i felt like that that way at least in new york city there was really a mishmash of alternative culture going on at the time. And probably the lineup of the festival itself reflects that. Well, yeah, like if you're listening to the radio, you're hearing a lot of that stuff that was at that festival, you know, maybe at different times of day, but like it was, it was a weird hodgepodge. I feel like I would have liked more wind up to how that happened. So when I'm reviewing it, I, I, I throw in a whole extra watch just because I realize that my, my review is about new metal and I don't feel like th this is a new metal documentary, but then, you know, the, the last watch, I'm like, actually it kind of really is. And that's kind of the animus, you know, if I'm to understand that scene from that documentary is that there was all this heavy, angry stuff. And so the article had to be about what that stuff was about. I would have loved to have talked about the band live performing there or like, the Cheryl Crow set, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I still watch to this day sometimes, low key. Like, mm -hmm. honestly, I've been in that footage like when it wasn't my assignment, which is why actually maybe I took that thing very personally. <laughs> Something also annoyed me 
was that the documentary kind of presented this opposition between like the artists who, who played, who were both morally and aesthetically on the right side of history versus the ones on the wrong side of history or something. And like Moby being presented as in full neck tattoo glory. Yeah. And like, I was like so aesthetically offended by what I was hearing and it's no surprise as a result that what happened happened. Like there's this direct correlation between aesthetics and morality when in reality these sorts of toxic dynamics happen in so many different scenes and also just knowing the creepier stories about moby that happen after the fact it's really interesting to have him in there as a voice of like totally. you know like ethical masculinity or whatever it didn't go on the piece because it was already too long but really i took a major issue with the way that he was being presented in it and obviously that's someone who's on a certain side of maybe the the nice guy music angry eye music divide in that era but like just to give him a platform in that documentary was i chuckled i'm not gonna lie yeah it was really absurd i really like and agree with your point emily about this strange correlation that they draw between aesthetics and morality in the documentary and i think it just continues to play into like how music festivals are presented today except now they kind of take full ownership of that like this music is for a certain aesthetic and therefore it will yield these kinds of results, except now that's been weaponized with capitalism. Craig, what do you make of the film's representation of 90s music history? Like the idea that Kurt Cobain ushered in this era of enlightened rock and roll, you know, that ended when he died, followed by record executives taking the worst aspects of grunge, creating a distinctly unenlightened version of that music. And then that's somehow a reaction against the teen pop of Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys, even though that actually is timeline-wise kind of inaccurate. In, in what ways is this film oversimplifying history by focusing on this binary between grunge and what came after? Let me couch this in saying, again, that I feel like I wish that the cultural commentators had a little bit more time to actually get into that stuff, but that it was really jammed up in a lot of different ways. It oversimplified things, it maybe misrepresented some stuff. It is definitely true that Kurt Cobain was a breath of fresh air and absolutely a necessary figure who brought a lot of light to that era. Also, Michael Stipe was another. Um, it is untrue that the feeding frenzy starts after he dies because 1992 is a banner year for fake and terrible grunge bands. Just there was a feeding frenzy that happened in the early 90s and it, it predates 94. They said the music got really dark after Kurt died. Also untrue. I remember specifically 1995 being an almost inappropriately sunny year in rock music. If you listen to the radio, like the stuff was cute and like jangly, like and it was so like strange. It doesn't get dark until like 97 is when stuff gets gritty and it feels tethered not to anything that had anything to do with Kurt, but rather to just like shifts in culture in general. The TRL thing, there's always been too much made of the sort of like adversarial relationship between the pop teens and, and the rock kids. They definitely did all try and commandeer TRL in the ways that fandoms do. But yeah. I don't feel that anyone was into any music because someone else was into something worse. Now, that said, the teen pop stuff was absolutely super, super squeaky clean. And I think maybe even represented it to a lot of people of like sort of the red wave that would sort of take over the country a little bit in the next decade in the 2000s. So that stuff made people itch. But I feel like as someone who was listening to that stuff percolating on the radio, before any of the battles were happening on TRL that like that's not really what happened like they're playing corn on the radio in like 96 95 Deftones 97 Limp mm -hmm. starts playing in 98 but then the, the the pop chart wars are like 99 so there was several years of this stuff percolating before the stuff that it is framed as a response to ever even came along it was fun to have the adversarial thing going on, but it was never like feeding people into the music. And what about this idea that somehow misogyny in music became more rampant towards the end of the decade? Maybe the scale shifted. I mm -hmm. just don't feel like the early 90s were necessarily the sweetest time at all. Now you have the Lilith Fair situation going on. You definitely have 
doors opening for women and, and singer songwriters were absolutely ruling. But that's throughout the decade. It doesn't track for me when I try and think about like how I remember that era sounding. The mid 90s, the late 90s, you have Alanis and you have Show Crows crushing. Mm-hmm. The misogyny was ever present. Maybe there were less sort of like nice guy voices in rock over time systematically. It's just like, it's too simple the way that I heard it explained. It, it, it makes me itch because it doesn't feel like what I felt. It just felt like really scapegoaty to me. The way the festival equated essentially, if you're looking for something to quote unquote blame, which I felt like this doc was doing a little bit, it seemed to put equal blame on white bros in jorts with greed, which to me is, you know, if we're going <laughs> to pick a villain for this whole thing, that's absolutely it. And that hasn't stopped being it in the music or festival world. And you even have these crazy kind of self-incriminating lines from the organizers who they interviewed which which to give the documentary credit i like that the filmmakers were like whoa well we're just gonna leave this here yeah it was definitely like a give them enough rope type situation right yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. i like that there was almost always a sensible counter like he would say something super outrageous the guy who was really i think responsible for for the thing sort of going the way it did john sure he would say something outrageous and he would try and shift the blame and then kind of the documentary would just point out you know, very carefully that actually it was quite different from what he was presenting. But Fred Durst doesn't get that luxury, which I thought was interesting. I'd be really curious to hear the actual full interviews with a lot of these commentators, because it just felt like they were really cherry picking a lot of their segments to fit this narrative that they had like decided they already had going into it. You know, like the, the, the way the way they like shoehorned in Wesley Morris talking about DMX felt like really absurd to me. This is why I'm not mad at any of the critics who were in it because it really felt like this thing was on rails and it didn't feel like they had a say in, in the, the direction of the thing. It, Absolutely, they said a lot and then parts of it were thrown in and shrewd in alongside this you know narrative of the thing flying off a cliff. Would you say that this documentary tells us more about our current moment in culture and media than it does anything else? And like, if so, what takeaways about the present moment does it suggest to you? Hmm. It sounds like somebody who's in the room there felt like things are better for festivals than they used to be. And I don't understand why anyone would feel that way when Coachella shows up at the end and it's like, see, look, like, you know, the field isn't too hot and everyone has access to water. Oh my God. (laughs) And just like, (laughs) I don't know how long ago any of that stuff was shot, but the scenery of this summer, that dropping into right before a couple of weeks of every music festival being wide open and having all these people in the middle of a pandemic, it's like, what if the message of this thing was if you're not careful, this can happen again. Instead of, man, the 90s got kind of dicey at the end. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It is really crazy because I think that I saw this documentary really close to, there was a headline about a festival in the Netherlands where a thousand people came down with COVID. It's like interesting to think about that there could have been some subliminal like tapping into a collective fear around concerts or something. Yeah. And I definitely just had to make the executive decision that I'm not going to a big arena show this month that I wanted to, I was going to see dead and company. My heart is hurt that I do not want to be in city field anytime soon. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like just the idea of the music festival is historically been riddled with, good examples and bad ones. I don't think it comes down to the character of of an era, what makes one go badly, because they go badly in every decade and they go well in every decade. I don't know. I felt like it focused too much and too specifically on Woodstock and on the Woodstock's past, because like the year after Woodstock, you have Altamont and it's some night and day cultural thing. The the 60s contained multitudes, as do the 90s, as does today. And they spent all of like, 30 seconds on Woodstock 94, which was the, I think I want to say the 25th anniversary of the original Woodstock. And they're like, 
Oh, yeah. So we had Woodstock 94 and that went great. It was like big peace and love vibes. But that's it. We're not going to, you know, <laughs> like and instead that, that could have been perhaps one of the more, more interesting ways to look at this is like, well, why did this work five years beforehand? Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it rained on that thing and they had fun in the mud is as I understand it. And like nobody went really wild. And surely some of those people were some of the people who were at the next one. <laughs> by the way there was low-key like a sort of woodstock 89 thing there were, there were like little things mm. in between but the 94 is like the big comeback um the other ones are small and like low-key soon to be forgotten if not already some of them were just like jam sessions where people like got together on the site and played i wouldn't necessarily consider them official woodstocks what's also interesting is not all of the original Woodstock, you know, the boomer Woodstock, not all of that went super well either. But they talk about in the documentary, how the original Woodstock documentary was kind of what crystallized this really positive vibe around it. Emily, going back to your point about the question you raised about what what takeaways about the present moment. One thing I kind of can't stop thinking about is the way they sort of shoehorned this parallel with something like Woodstock 99 planted the seeds for what we saw at the Capitol riots on January 6th, which as an objective idea is not a bad one. That's an interesting line of cultural thinking, but the execution comes across as this sort of post Columbine Fox news pearl clutching of like the music is making the youth bad. Um, which is ironic because they even like weirdly like show those post Columbine Fox News clips in the documentary itself, and it feels a little bit like that meme of Spider Man pointing at Spider Man. But the fact that they tried to sort of force this narrative and were very flatly also kind of playing this sort of woke bingo by hitting on all these different cultural points superficially and not returning to them, it just felt kind of like neoliberal pandering, dog whistling woke appeasement for like a generation where everything's going to be picked apart on social media i never thought about it that way i think i was giving it the benefit of the doubt because i was it rubbed me so wrongly that i sort of like went a little bit nuts in the article like trying to like identify what was upsetting i don't know maybe that's the case i both feel like this documentary absolutely has this overarching guiding ethos to it but also that not everybody in it is necessarily an instrument of it i don't know who the intended audience is that's another thing i still don't know right exactly it can't can't be people who are there because what is there for them i think that my read on it if i just picture what the discussion around pitching this idea might have looked like or like why a network would think this was a good investment i could sort of imagine a conversation where it's like oh, our reference for this is Firefest, but we need to justify turning this into this very lurid story and like the exploitative elements that are necessarily included, like all of the images of the women and their breasts. And I can sort of imagine it being like, okay, well, this has a rubbernecking quality to it, but we also want to make this classy and like provide some context and some conclusions along the way. And then they just chose the ones that sounded good or were sort of easily within reach. I feel like they were just like, yeah, people who like love Bill Simmons will love this. <laughs> 100%. And it was really that simple in my head, but that's not something you can write down. You know, you can't explain <laughs> like how Bill Simmons reads is like a sort of cultural context. <laughs> like, um, but I want to, I want to quickly get back to something because you were talking about how there were conservative points being passed off as woke. But the thing is that there is definitely a sort of non-political, but maybe a sort of ethical cultural conservatism to, wing of wokeness where like the sort of PC aspect that was absolutely the entire politics of the right wing at the time in the nineties and the late nineties and in the two thousands sort of got adopted by the other side. And so like, it's possible for wokeness to manifest itself as restrictive 
don't do this. And I think that that's sort of what a bit of that was, although it is sort of ridiculous that they would show the the conversations about the Columbine kids and their taste in music while sort of trying to implicate an entire genre in the literal destruction and the literal burning of this festival. Yeah, I guess what I just found myself wondering watching it was I was like, is this documentary trying to argue for rock shows not going out of control? I mean, it's a very complicated question. I think it's the whole cultural reckoning we're in right now. But isn't cultural energy exploding the interesting thing about music? Like that obviously doesn't okay the horrible, make no mistake about it, horrible things that did happen at this festival. But isn't there another way to examine this that doesn't steamroll the two things together? They could have played some Cheryl Crow. Um, <laughs> I'm not even being funny. It's a good set. Pull it up. <laughs> if you have one takeaway from this conversation, it's watch her, the Cheryl Crow set from Woodstock 99. Yo, no, watch live too. It is literally just a half an hour of like slowly lead singer Ed Kowalczyk removing his shirts. It's really funny. <laughs> but it slaps Loki like if that's your thing. It's lightning crashes is your thing. I feel ancient right now. I recently posted this silly tweet. It was around the time that this came out where I was like, why were there no music documentaries? And then suddenly many music documentaries where it just felt like all of a sudden there were these like documentaries coming out that were big cultural moments that everybody was talking about. And this one was definitely one of them. Craig, just based on your knowledge of what's in the air or, you know, just the industry itself, how do you account for this happening all of a sudden or especially given like the current state of music journalism proper, where not a lot of budget to go around often at publications, but then you see these really, really expensive feeling documentaries happen. Right. It's like you have Tina Turner, you have Summer of Soul, you have this whole series that the Woodstock documentary is a part of. There's a lot. It's a zillion things. I feel like maybe... The simplest one is maybe they just didn't realize that there was as big of an audience for that stuff as there is now. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one is that we are in a massive time of forgetting things. And so getting on the record about how something went down so that people who get their knowledge about things from the streaming services or from Wikipedia or whatever, rather than really doing the nerdy research stuff, will have something that they can refer to and something that they can that can give them a concise understanding of how a, an era went. You know, explainer mm-hmm. culture is what I mean. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's part of the whole pivoting to video thing where it was once decided that people would prefer to watch their music information than read it. And maybe that still is the case to a certain extent. But yeah, a lot of different factors, I think. Yeah, I mean, like, long-form nonfiction streaming content is popping right now. The Tiger King phenomenon. Yep. And I also don't think it's the case for this documentary, but for, like, artist-specific documentaries, there also might be a desire on the part of said artists to pitch these kinds of things because apparently it, it can provide a boost in streaming and album sales or whatnot. Yeah, um, like a good, a good, a good turn in like the the, the court of conversation will absolutely produce like dividends. Like the 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 Jadakiss, the the Locks versus a Dipset battle has apparently spiked Jadakiss record sales by two hundred percent and gotten them the whole Locks a spot on the Kanye album. So like, if there is a groundswell of attention for whatever reason, you're gonna make some money off of it. And so maybe there are some acts that were maybe a little less reticent to have cameras dig into their history that are wanting to do that now. One thing I've been thinking about this whole time I've been researching this doc is that to me, it really embodies this era where like content has become more important than context. And I think because it's very much following that trajectory where you can't look away from it. I mean, the footage is incredible. It's like premium contact, but our whole issue we seem to be taking with it is that it, it is very much devoid of context in making its point. It's really flattening this narrative and providing something that I don't feel like is an accurate or holistic picture of a scene and a time and an ethos. (laughs) 
let's talk about the rise of Bill Simmons' media empire and Bill Simmons kind of as this pop culture whole. And, you know, what he and this Music Box series represents for culture journalism and, and as sort of a touchstone. I am a person who owns a 30 for 30 box set. I thought that I wanted to teach myself more about sports history, so I got it. And I think that those are usually pretty good. Yeah. And so it was almost surprising to me that like this one wouldn't have that same kind of a like all encompassing like understanding of the moment. Especially because Bill Simmons was literally billing this as 30 for 30 for music, which to me thus far, only one episode in it, it very much does not seem that way. When I was just looking at what are the other episodes or mini docs that are coming from this music box series. And I remember looking at them and just being like, man, each one of these, I can tell you exactly like what the PR motivation was behind booking that. Like to me, they have nothing to do with the actual like trajectory of state of music right now. Like here, here's what the next episodes are. And I, in my opinion, like why they're making them. Okay. So you have Cheryl Crow. Okay. Cause it's a big anniversary year for her and she's going on tour again and, and putting out new music, I believe. Sure. Then Kenny G meme fodder DMX. Cause he died juice world. Cause he died. I mean, this is very cynical of me, but to me, those bookings just speak to feeding that cycle of record sales and attention that each of these things are kind of like already garnering a little bit and will be popular on the internet. I don't know. Do you guys agree with that? What do you think? I feel like they couldn't telegraph some of that stuff, but I don't know. Maybe this thing is in the works and they see stuff happening a little bit further down the line and it gets another edit. I couldn't say when it came together to necessarily understand like, the guiding philosophies, the, the why, what gets in that does. I don't know. I just like, if I'm watching a music documentary, I want to understand the music. And I don't feel like we really got that. Like, And it's not a substitute for music criticism or like in-depth music journalism that can fill in those holes. But at the same time, Bill Simmons and his properties and, you know, this mini empire he has now is like, I feel increasingly being perceived as like the touchstone for long form cultural journalism. Or I don't, I don't know, disagree with me. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not that I disagree. With Peace and Love to the Ringer, this documentary gives me pause about, you know, that sort of kind of coverage spilling into more music. And, you know, people have had their reasonable qualms with Simmons over the years and particularly like some of his writing in the past. It felt like that guy was in the room for this one. And Very I wanted it to be though. the other guy. <laughs> for people who are listening who might not be that familiar, who is that guy and who is the other guy? You know, some of his sports writing was really sort of edgy and like maybe dismissive, not entirely fair all the time. But like, I wouldn't say that about Ringer. That's what I meant about that guy. It just looks like an aesthetic that is increasingly attributed to that guy. Simmons like comes with a certain connotation now, like to a certain set on the internet. Uh, do you know the old school, like sort of guys club sports journalism kind of situation? I don't know. To be fair though, the doc does have enough of a social conscience. However, maybe heavy handed it is that like, maybe I'm being unfair. <laughs> I constantly question the point that I'm about to make like in real time in case you're wondering what all that <laughs> is like <laughs> it's, it's how I talk as well as how I write I almost wonder if that heavy-handedness was sort of compensating for past critiques that people have had of him but yeah don't get me wrong I love the ringer loved Grantland I just think it's an interesting trajectory because he's sort of one of the last bastions of kind of a real culture journalism force you know in an era where the magazines that used to be that are struggling for relevance or just simply not existing anymore but at the same time you see him really taking off so the, the doc ends by more or less celebrating Coachella the first Coachella in 1999 as some kind of utopian return to what festivals are quote supposed to be you know and it really ignores the reality of what they actually have been Craig, you point this out in your piece that there have been deaths and chaos and many subsequent festivals, you know, as recently as like a couple of years ago. Um, to me, the reality feels like Coachella and others kind of just took the energy and ethos of 
Woodstock 99, packaged it in a legally safe way, and then monetized it. So I'm, I'm just curious to kind of talk about today's festival industrial complex and in context of this doc, the way it, it frames Woodstock 99 as an aberration and whether or not we actually think that's true. Um, let me preface by saying that since maybe 2001, I've been almost exclusively an East Coast character. So I have not been to a Coachella, but I have been to things that are put on by you know the people who made them. They've gotten really good at putting them on, but not necessarily so good at corralling people, stopping the worst of what can happen when a bunch of people get together. We've seen there's a big problem with arrests at country music festivals and also a big problem with groping and assault at those. There's been violence at hip hop festivals. Uh, Travis Scott tried to start a riot at Lala maybe five years ago. Just issues everywhere. And so it was just, I don't know, it was really unusual to see just the sense that we're in a better place now. I don't know that we are. And I don't know that we ever got out of that bad place. Like every festival that happens carries the potential for something awful to happen. And often something does. Think about the ascendancy of EDM festivals, all of the stories about kids dying of ecstasy, I mean, overdosing. Dying, dying, multiple kids at the same festival dehydration there was this horrible thing at the la coliseum with the horrible like stampede and it's ironic because that happened that was i think a big crisis seen as a big crisis in the music world i mean i know in la like we reported the heck out of it and then they just uprooted and moved to las vegas <laughs> it's just so easy for a mass gathering of people to to go way left I was at the, uh, I forget what festival it was. I think it was maybe the Meadows or something. It was it was in City Field. It was the festival where Kanye was headlining. And it was the night that Kim had gotten, had gotten robbed and kidnapped mm-hmm. in the middle of his set. So I remember this very distinctly. You know, he's like, oh, I got a family issue. He throws the mic down and he steps away. It's been like maybe 45 minutes. We were expecting another 45 or so. Um, and you know, maybe five, 10 minutes pass and a guy comes out and he's like, Oh, you know, sorry, Kanye had a family emergency. He won't be back. And for a minute, no one had unlocked the gates and it started getting rowdy. And I didn't know if there was going to be violence in a weekend that had otherwise been pretty peaceful. It was, there was about to be a riot at the door. I heard about some stuff that happened in New York city that maybe some people had issue at the door to a big event about, you know, the vax policy. And so that's why I don't understand why there would just ever be this perception that like, oh, you know, we've got it figured out now. Like, no, we don't. (laughs) There's always going to be this opposition also between like public safety and profit and like how many people can you jam in and, you know, can this show go on in light of a public health emergency and all of those things. Right. Because much like, one of the organizers said in the doc, you know, he's like, well, we were just trying to book the most popular bands. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's absolutely has continued. I mean, to an almost caricature like point, you know, with festivals. like Yeah. Coachella. The festival bills this year, are just like who's alive this year. Right. I always, I always talk about how like, to me, the Coachella lineup is almost like the new Grammys because that really tells you like who's at the top of the pop music game and everything. That's sharp. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's not about, and for a long time and maybe never was to me about really that peace and love and freedom ethos. It's like, can you, you know, afford a ticket to this, this scene and be seen event that's just going to kind of like amalgamate. At one point it was about amalgamating subcultures. Now it's about amalgamating. I don't, I don't know. Influencers. I don't know. Um, well, to, to be fair to the more curated and the more sort of, deeply seen specific festivals like that does exist and there are joints that like happen that are actually i think maybe more ethically run than anything else so i don't want to say that the entire like festival scene is a smokestack but just the bigger ones can be a dice roll i'm always worried when there's a rolling loud (laughs) right like the wrong thing is going to happen and i feel like especially when like when XSS Tentacion was was going around and like really stuff was getting dicey and violent at his shows, it's it just always can happen. And and that greed that that sets up the circumstances and that sets people up to to 
start acting like their worst selves is still there. Right. And kind of always going to be there whenever you get, you know, 100,000 people together in a place. Andrea, you were wondering, like, is this utopian ideal of the peace and love festival just a myth? Maybe it's just like a brand and you kind of need like a brand to draw people there in the first place. Ooh. But that's, you know, but like that was the brand of Woodstock. Yeah. It was not the brand of like Woodstock 99. Or I don't think it was. Maybe some people thought that they were getting the typical Woodstock experience when they went to 99. <laughs> but it's funny because like, is there even a typical Woodstock experience? I think, you know, one question that lingered to me while watching the doc that no one asked was why wasn't there another Woodstock after Woodstock 69? I mean, or at least not another one for 25 years. I think that unto itself is telling. The thing that they left out of this particular documentary is the Woodstock 2019 debacle. Um, Ooh, that's recently, and recently I saw a tweet by, I think it was David Crosby and someone had like asked him what happened with it. And he said, very matter-of-factly, well, the person who was setting it up was a scammer. And I think this was Crosby who said this. So only to the effect of I told him to put the money forward and it never showed up. So that's why that never happened. Now, I don't know who he's speaking about specifically, but it sounds like maybe the problems of Woodstock are about a couple of people and not Mm. the whole generation writ large. The organizing hand of it. Mm. Maybe there's something going on with that. I don't know. They're trying to capitalize on on an ideal and an ethos and, and brandify it. Just circling back real quick to just how not that much has changed. I mean, I remember watching the scene in the dock with the Chili Peppers playing on the final night, you know, and kids are lighting things on fire and there's chaos. And I remember thinking about being at Coachella in 2013 when the Chili Peppers were playing the final set on the final night. Mm. And there was a stampede and chaos again as people trying to leave because there was this like insane dust storm and wind that was like knocking over speaker towers and it took us like six hours to get home because we like couldn't get to the car and couldn't see in front of us because the dust was so bad and everything was so like i mean no disrespect to coachella i think that's like an insane undertaking that they put on and i think they all work very hard to do it to do it well and have continued to improve it but it was just like, this feels the same as what I'm watching on the screen, except there weren't as many fires. And also when they were, you know, on the screen at the end, you had all these crime stats of it that year. I, I had to report the crime stats for Coachella and EDC for years when I was at newspapers the morning after the festival. They were like way, way higher than the ones that were reported for Woodstock 99. And that doesn't make any of them okay. And of course, you have the complicating factor of a lot of stuff going unreported to the cops for sure. But again, it just took the wind out of their angle to me a little bit. And probably a lot of similar stuff. I don't know if it was documented with even the original Woodstock as well. I'm sure. We hit on this a little bit earlier, but the doc villainizes all of these different cultural factors without, in my opinion, spending much time on perhaps the biggest villain, which is greed. And, and the parallels that we were just drawing to how that continues to influence how festivals are taking shape today. Like even just the very notion of like continuing to try to cram as many people as possible to see the biggest artists possible at a certain site. I don't know. Have, have we learned anything about greed from this documentary or, or as a culture? I don't know that we did. I think maybe they just wanted to let the guy, they wanted to let you get your perception of the guy and your takeaway from what he says is like, ew, this was completely about greed and like lacking curation and lacking a, a, an ethical pulse that would have made it go well. I feel like there's like a loud subtext in that documentary and I want to give it credit for maybe like leaving that for you to figure out intentionally. I don't mm -hmm. know. Maybe it is an omission and there should have been someone saying, hey, this guy sucks, but like maybe he wouldn't have wanted to participate if that happened. Right, right. Well, Craig Jenkins, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for our show. Today's episode was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me. 
Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. To read Craig's essay and check out more of his work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. If you like what you're hearing, consider sharing us with friends or leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.